All right, things are starting to get juicy. Last week on Unknowing Podcast, we explored how the evolutionary theology of a paleontologist and priest named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin turned Christianity on its head, or maybe right side up, in having the audacity, the insane heretical courage to declare that matter matters, that Christ was in this stuff all along, that there was no great separation between bodiliness and divinity. And so, of course, I wanted to travel further into that crack, into that great rupture (laughs) in the philosophical foundations of the story of Christianity that became really synonymous with Roman Empire and perpetuated these Roman philosophical views. So if we're in the business of composting Christianity, we're also in the business of composting these many other institutions that have become symbiotically intertwined to the point where you can't really separate these monsters. And I guess this brings us to the point in the exploration around composting that might make us feel a little uncomfortable, which is ultimately embracing the dying, the decaying, the molding of what has been. And to see that as necessary as part of the process of renewal, but to look to that which we consider hideous in our culture's aesthetic of superiority, of ableism, of beauty as being only pertinent to youth. (laughs) This is revolutionary work, and it requires a different way of thinking, a thinking that is more aligned with the way that tricksters break in 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 fairy tales or in mythologies, not as evil characters, maybe, but as disruptors of what has been, disruptors of the categories, disruptor of the path, the hag that appears on the path and actually takes you further into the depths of the darkness of the hideous forest, right? These are how the stories go. But we also know from these myths, from these stories, that that is how transformation happens. So these mythological lenses, these folktale lenses, help us to reframe what seems monstrous as maybe being the site of potentiality. They help us reconsider what is really hideous or hag-like or decaying in our lives as maybe the site of alchemy, of magic and possibility. So I wanted to have a conversation with the ultimate trickster, Bayo Akumulafe. If you're a listener of this show, you know that Bayo is no stranger to Unknowing Podcast and probably is quoted almost as much, if not more, than Beatrice Bruto. So you've probably made a drinking game as well of all the times that I bring up Bio's work. Dr. Bio Akomolafe is a celebrated international speaker. He's a philosopher, teacher, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, which I've basically been talking about for two years now. So if you haven't read that book, please go out and get it and read it and enjoy it. And we will tell our own story, The Lions of Africa Speak. Bio is the convener of concepts like post-activism, transraciality, and ontofugivity. He's like a master chef poet of words and concepts, combining ideas and liberating new flavors and textures into our imagination, which in turn invites wilder dreams. At least that's been the case in my own life. But I'm sure that that experience is shared by everyone who has encountered his incredible work and been touched by his philosophy, by his articulation of what could be. If you'd like to learn a little bit more of Bio's history and his life, you can check out the episode that we did together of season one of Unknowing Podcast, episode three. And you can also check out the links that I'll have in the show notes below. Now, a quick editorial note, some of the terms that you're about to hear might be new to you. And I just want to invite you to sit with the discomfort of unknowing, even in that experience, to recognize that there's new terms being thrown around or new concepts. Feel free to pause this episode as many times as you need to just look things up or 
let concepts or ideas move you and simmer. Sometimes when I'm performing live on stage, I'll say to the audience, you may notice that I'm not always singing in English. <laughs> and this may create an experience of discomfort for you, not knowing the language. But I always say to the audience, I hope you'll let yourself be taken away anyway. I hope you'll let yourself be carried by what you don't know and don't understand. Ultimately, that feels like, you know, the invitation of a podcast called Unknowing. But I just wanted to bring that up here at the start so that if you do find yourself uncomfortable in moments of unknowing or just taking in the newness of some of these ideas, that you'll relax into that experience as part of the gift. So with that, let's dive right into this rich conversation with my dear friend and teacher, Bayo Kumulafe, on this ongoing exploration of season three of Unknowing Podcast, Composting Christianity. Bayo, thank you so much for joining me on this show, on Unknowing, yet again, to discuss today's conversation. I wanted to begin by talking to you about how you describe what is monstrous, what frightens us. In your book, you write about seeking Lilith and turning toward what mm. is monstrous, what frightens us. Mm. And this summer, I taught a course which relied on fairy tales and folk tales as our guide. And as I'm sure you know, being devoured, maimed, severed, and eaten is a necessary part of how many indigenous folk tales describe the process of transformation. So in this particular season, I'm exploring the idea of the institutionalization of belief systems and how that begins to form its own kind of monstrous device. And the decay of an institution is particularly frightening, I think, for us because we fear chaos, the mess and the rot. And so we use declarative determinisms like, well, then that institution was a failure. And so I'm wanting to explore the relationship between institutions and empire and control and how that is showing up in the United States politically around the topic of Christianity. Mm. So I'm curious, what do you observe about that relationship and about why that turn toward accepting what is monstrous about what has happened, what has what has been shaped by the collusion between empire and a belief system? Why might that embrace of the monstrous be the beginning of something new being able to be born? Mm. Beautiful question. And I love that framing. Juicy, inviting. Hospi I could go on. <laughs> Hospitable. Uh, because the monstrous is the is what subsidizes settlement, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's what subsidizes the values, and you know what comes to mind is the pristine categoricity of the pure Englishman, right? The myth of the Englishman who is unmoored and untethered and free and individual and rational, right? You know, it's this, uh, it's this image that inhabits our fondest notions of freedom and, and inhabits the um, liberal traditional ideas that are so sticky today. We think through them as a result. Um, I think of that category, that trope of the Englishman and beneath it, what had to give what had to die to prop up that notion of the pure Englishman? I'm thinking about 1897, you know, the British expeditionary force that came to present-day Nigeria, what was then the Kingdom of Benin, and ransacked with huge guns at the edges of the village, killed and maimed thousands upon thousands of people, and then carted away, you know, their memories, memories that are now called rudely the Benin Bronzes, right? Which are now domiciled in pyramids. And of course, by pyramids, I mean the modern day pyramids, the museums across Europe, the British Museum being the greatest archive of these stolen artifacts, right? So that 
even purity, you know, had to wield machetes and had to kill, you know, to subsidize that notion of its purity, of its of its stand aloneness. So the monster is, I mean, the, the cultural uses of the monster, if I could use that rude term, uses, um, the utility of the monster is that we use it to build place. Mm. We, we use it to make rituals. We use it to create the boundaries of our moral projects, whether the moral projects is that of progress or that of slavery. We, we use the monster to, to mark territory. Um, and this is the reason why we're so enamored of the hero's journey, the myth of progress, descending into the ground and defeating the monster and then coming out to the surface again. There's always an invitation to encounter the monster, except in this instance, the instance of modernity, the relation is dis- is defined or characterized by defeat. Mm-hmm. Someone comes up with mastery, with victory. That's the price that's earned. But then the trickster invites us to notice that there are moments when our morality traps us, when morality itself has nothing else to give to a situation, where it it becomes impoverished. Yes, so this is where we speak about the despair or the hollowing out or the composting of institutions that we've learned, by which we've learned to see the world, right? Democracy, right? The institution of the man, the anthropos. You know, even money seems to be becoming fugitive these days, right? All the pillars of civilization, right? All the pillars of civilization just seem to be showing cracks, right? Yeah. And our attempt is to fix it up. So we adopt new language. We speak about healing. We speak about justice, not realizing that even in our counter-hegemonic efforts to address demise, we somehow retrace the colonial cartographies that brought us in here in the first place. So it's it's like we're going to win this war. You know, it's like the myth. Uh-huh. I'm just jumping from uh-huh. here to there. It's like the myth. That's such a rich question. It's the it's the uh, Samudra Matan, right? The Hindu mythology, the 1,000 year old war between the Devas and the Asuras, the evil side and the good side, and they're fighting. It's like a tug of war, right? And they are wrapped around this huge giant snake, right? And whoever wins more of the snake to its side wins. But somehow this goes on for a thousand years. By the way, the snake is wrapped around a huge mountain, which is itself dipped into an ocean of milk, right? And so in their tug of war, right? <laughs> it's, it's Hindu mythology. You know, it's going to be bizarre that way. Yeah. In, in the togging to get to see who gains power and supremacy, the ocean of milk becomes curds. It becomes curdified, right, in that struggle. So that something other than mastery and victory is produced. Some other thing that is unanticipated, greater than an exceeding opposition, is produced. And this is how I think about these moments. That we're in such a moment now that even our efforts, right, the victim and the perpetrator, the colonized and the colonizer, the oppressor and the oppressed, we're caught in a, in a carceral dynamic that doesn't know what else to do, right? Even critique seems to be part of the department of the critiqued, yeah. right? So yeah. we, we, we don't know where to go. We're stuck right now. This is where the monster comes in. And the trickster is always this monstrous transversality that breaks through the morality, the binary, and invites something to spill. And so we have stories of Eshu, the trickster in Yoruba mythology, sailing away in his treacherous villainy with the slaves instead of stopping the slave trade. He sails away and uses displacement of the transatlantic slave trade to create new worlds. So I think that's where we are at the moment. The United States is stuck. The left is not producing I think the left is producing the right now and the right is producing the left, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. In, in a sense. So there's, there's, there's nothing else that could happen except a reinforcement of the old, the sameness that we're used to, except a line of flight proceeds from this circle of convergence. Wow. And that's precisely where I am experiencing a falling away of the binary categories that have so defined 
reality, quote unquote, for so many of us for so long. Yeah. In the sense that even the identifications are part of that continual reconstructing of the old ways, the, you know, what has been. And, you know, I, I think in my own experience in the last few years, I, I want to ask you about homogeneity and, and reaching back yeah. through time mm-hmm. to the wild as you write about so beautifully beyond our fences and in my own unraveling of identity beyond these binary terms of either being in or out, you're either a Christian or you're not, you're yeah. either a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. Um, in my own unraveling identity, the more I've dug into my own Celtic ancestry and the cultural milieu and mess and spirituality that is intermingled with so much of the landscape and histories and landscapes of moving peoples, the more I'm experiencing that unraveling of notions of religious identity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you write about this. These human expressions, you know, have, have always been concomitant. But I guess the thing that I'm experiencing right now, Bios, is this this one empire to rule them all mm-hmm. concept is the vestige of a power that combined a new religion in one particular moment in time with the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And we killed everything that didn't fit into that homogeneity, that mm-hmm. blended patriarchy, which was the Roman culture, mm-hmm. and hijacked and uprooted the story of this one man's life in Galilee. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if you feel this, I feel sorry for Jesus, like what, yep. Yep. what this one man's experience has been turned into. Yeah. But people like to look back on history and justify history by saying things, well, such enforcement of uniformity was necessary because otherwise Christianity wouldn't have survived or modernity right. wouldn't have happened. Right. And how can we look at the past, Bio, without the need to clean up the mess with a justification of outcomes that are unfinished messes in and of themselves. Like, mm. like, are we really celebrating a survival of the fittest in spirituality by justifying the version of what has survived as good and all that didn't as not good? So yeah. how do we look back on history with that same kind of acceptance of the monstrous middle as you write about? Mm. Well, that's such a beautiful question. How can we look back on the past without, I heard it differently. How can we look back on the past without attempted to clean up the mess. You know, I heard council culture in there. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like fitting into the moral imperatives of today. It's like the individual gaze were removed from the goings on in the world. And so we look back through these algorithms to try to create the world in the image of the now. Uh-huh. But but that but that I digress. That's a different and that's yes, also a really great question. Right? It is. It is. It, it, that's the question I heard. That's the question I, I heard. But but what you're asking is something different, sister. You're saying that there is this convergence, basically, that has created this flattened world, right? It's, it's what mm-hmm. Aaron Manning will call um, the clearing, right? It's it's a clearing. Dougald um, Hine will, will call it the... Um, a fishbowl, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's basically how we have flattened the world, and it's a placemaking project. It's how we create worlds in that way. I have a little bit of compassion for even the monolith, for even homogenization, and I say this knowing full well that homogenization has been a uh, has been a paradigm of death. Right, and I don't. I don't mean a paradigm of death as opposed to some utopian political imaginary. I mean the way it has framed death and the way it has practiced death has brought so much suffering. But if that were the entire story, then we will be dealing with absolutes, and I don't traffic in absolutes that well. Um, I haven't advanced to that <laughs> to that height, great height of trafficking in absolutes. I'm quite grounded in my analysis. Um, But you must know the story of Baldur and his heavenly fate, right? You know the story, right? No, uh uh-uh. Baldur, the son of Odin, the son of Frigga. Well, I think it's Freya, but a a Scandinavian brother of mine told me that it's Frigga. Um, So I'm gonna go with Frigga. Um, Baldur is the son and a prophecy comes 
to the halls of heaven that Baldur, the handsomest of gods, will die. And so Frigga does what every deified, powerful mother who has the means would do. She travels the nine universes. Is it seven or nine? Um, she travels all the universes and she convinces every being, living and non-living, sentient and non-sentient, to give up their agency so that Baldur lives. Basically, she extracts a promise from every single thing, right? And says, you will not harm my son. And she succeeds in this impossible task. She succeeds. And upon returning, she finds out, as you do in these stories, that she's missed a spot. And the spot is the mistletoe. But she surmises, she thinks to herself, the mistletoe is, a, is an innocent being. It hasn't been known to ever harm any creature. So she leaves that. Loki hears this, notices that this is the missing spot, and fashions from the mistletoe a weapon, right? And uses that weapon through the agency of another god to kill Baldur. That's the summary of the story. Of course, why I tell the story is I feel it's an archetype of the Romanizing, homogenizing, uh, patriarchal influences that has given birth to our rational and rationalizing world ethic, right? Mm -hmm. It is this killing of everything else. It's a clearing. It's colonial. It's imperative. It's imperial, rather. It's hegemonic. It's saying ev to everything else, just die so that my son could live. You know, withdraw the agency of the thorn in the thorn. Withdraw the agency of the raw in the lion and let my son live right? But to make him impervious to pain was also simultaneously to make him impervious to pleasure, to make him impervious to different imaginations. And notice it's the trickster's monstrosity. Back to our first question. It's the trickster's monstrosity, the transversality of the mistletoe in the hands of Loki that breaks the bubble and invites spillage. In this case, the spillage is dying, right? So, I've traced too far. I'm not even sure what the question was. Again, brief. No, no, you haven't. But that that but that worldview of how we I think the question is is around um how can we look at the past without making declarative deterministic statements of justification? Hmm. That ah oh, well, you know, this needed to happen. And somehow by justifying that clearing, even despite the clearing you say, here is this one spot, this rebellious trickster. But I guess what I find bio is that some people utilize that justification as a way to continue to uphold the pillars themselves yes. 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 of that colonial need to continue blindly, somewhat choicefully adhering, maybe both blindly and choicefully adhering, to the continuation of that institution as opposed to allowing it to die or compost into something yes. new. I mean, it is how the clearing thinks. It's how the space, it's how modernity thinks. It has to continue itself. And so it casts its gaze across history and says, yes, in order to give you these gifts, in order to, to create the paradigm of the citizen, I needed to flatten everything. I needed to, to take away your agency so that you could constitute this new world. So I, I, I think that... If we take it for granted, if we accept and recognize that thought isn't the product of individuated minds, that thought is ecological, and we will understand that the spaces we inhabit inhabit us in return. Mm -hmm. And so trains and technologies and airports think, and they would think through and utilizing and enlisting our bodies to propagate their continuity. But that also suggests that when breaks happen, breaks also have thought patterns and they also think. And I think breaks think in terms of monsters. That's how a break thinks. I mean, that is such a wonderful inversion of a world that has declared itself with God on its side <laughs> as being in the right yes. against the monstrous evil of chaos or disorder or even death. Right here, we are talking about composting or being willing to compost institutions like Christianity. But when we've been 
trained <laughs> to think about death as defeat or as the ultimate monstrous, right? Then we don't move toward what is actually new life, new opportunity that could come from the compost. Yes. Um, yes. And, and there is an invitation there to reframe our ideas of endings, right? Because even, you know, oh, my marriage didn't work out. Did it? Maybe it did. Maybe it just lived its term, <laughs> you know, or I left the church and there's this sense of like, I left this thing behind, but maybe it births me <laughs> into this new place. Yes. So bio, I'm wondering if this is part of the invitation of composting to, and again, and I love how you do this so frequently, to queer our categories to, to maybe consider, and this is perhaps, Bio, one of the reasons why I'm wanting to pose this question. Is Christianity really, is, is, is the most authentic expression of Christianity, could it be possible that the most authentic expression of Christianity would be realized only when it composts itself? Yes. <laughs> only when it dies. Yes, indeed. Only when the institution finally crumbles yes, might Christianity become a realized truth, you know, the seed within the husk that had to die away. <laughs> I don't know, mm, you know? Mm. One of my favorite stories is in Acts chapter 17, verses 20-something to 30-something. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to nail <laughs> it that. that way, but it's in, it's in the Acts of the Apostles. And it's a story of the founder of Christianity, whom we all know is not Jesus Christ. It's St. Paul. <laughs> according to many theologians that I deeply respect. Paul's itinerant evangelicalism took him um, to many places, including Athens. And in that particular passage of the New Testament, he is wandering the streets of Athens. And he comes to a place where he notices that he's starting to despair because he According from his own perspective, there are gods everywhere. And this, mm -hmm. this angers Paul, like, oh, these <laughs> idols. If only they would worship the one true God, right? And then he comes summarily at a crack in the Bible. Yes. I, it, <laughs> this it's, is the it's best. A, What's the best? <laughs> yeah, this is the best to me, is that the, the way you just described that, that there's a crack right there in the middle. It's a to crack. To the unknown the, God. <laughs> to the unknown God. You know, the agnostos theos. It's to the unknown God. But when I was growing up as a Christian, I, I had the blustering confidence of Paul to immediately <laughs> take that crack and use it, you know, to make it this utilitarian enterprise, <laughs> which is what Paul proceeded to do. He said, there you are. I know this unknown God, the rudeness of that. He says, I know this unknown God, and this unknown God is my God, right? He basically turns the script on the Athenians and says, I know this guy, this guy that you guys are claiming you don't know. You know, I know this guy. It's only now that I realize that that's a crack in the Bible. And the reason I call it a crack is because that was also an opportunity to step back away from our claims, you know, to, mm. to knowing this, this entity that we rudely call God, right? Um, so <laughs> the unknown God is, is, to me, this apophatic politics. It's this artistic politics is the trickster creating binaries and then turning around on his back and then eating up those binaries only to defecate new binaries again it's it's <laughs> it's the ongoingness of of god or godding mm -hmm. right or selfing mm -hmm. right it's mm -hmm. god in its in its utmost relationality and incompleteness and the reason why i found my christian faith incredibly toxic and poisonous is because at some point I felt I'd eaten everything there was to eat and there was nothing else to do. There was nowhere else to go. And that's a damning, terrible place to be in. Mm. Right. When you feel you figured it out, this is the reason why heaven is frightening to me. <laughs> I would rather run to a, you know, a Sauron, you know, in, <laughs> in Tolkien's myth than to abide with 
the Abrahamic God who has this golden paradise and you have your room in this paradise and everything is, it's like a, it's like this eternal suburbia, you know? It, it, so, so yes, you know, the multiplicity and the indeterminacy. And I think this is what the mystic traditions um, that, that shy away from Christendom as this dome, you know, th this is what they hold and this is what they treasure, that there are other ways to think about spirituality and the sacred. And this is why I treasure the, the works and the scholarship of people like Catherine Keller, you know, whom we both admire, mm -hmm. I'm sure. So, um, yes, there's a lot more to say about that, but yes, <laughs> this is how I feel. Well, okay, so so this is bringing up two different tributaries, I and I want to travel down both of them. One is you named this act that you said the rude naming, this rude naming of God. Yeah. Um, the claim that we have, the idea that we could possibly place a singular name mm -hmm. on that which has always been the unknown God, the mystery beyond our our impoverished language. So I want to ask you. Yes. That's one tributary. I'm, I'm, let's go down this one first. I want to ask you about naming. And, you know, <laughs> ideas such as father, lord, king, that are still sung to this day with great reverence, with complete ignorance as to how those names are perpetuating a worldview <laughs> of colonial like subjugation and I'm and I experienced this bio and I'm a I'm like you know I'm a, I'm living the paradox because I'm a mother to two children who are in a Christian school. I lost that fight with their father. Like he really <laughs> wanted them in a Christian school. And there were you know there were bigger things to care about during the divorce than that. Well now it's like you know I go to a concert of my kids performing in a choir or in in their band and they have to sanctify everything. Lord God, we want to, you know, invoke you. Thank you for, you know, and then they sing these, you know, King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords songs. And I'm sitting there just like mm. looking around me like, what is this madness? <laughs> so I want to ask you about naming and what happens when we lose our creative impetus to use new names <laughs> or even the idea of considering a work of sacred scriptures as unfinished. <laughs> so mm. why is multiplicity, multivocality critical and important in the heretical utterance of creating a rupture to what has been declared finished or what has been declared the names of God? You know, I would even go further than just multivocality or polyvocality and say the non-communicable, right? Yeah. The incommunicability. Okay. Yeah of things, right? My my son who is on the spectrum to me is a wild god, right? Hmm. His 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 autism, his resistance of subjectivization, you know, the refusal to show up, to be accessible, right? This is what Glisson called the right to opacity. Mm. Right? I don't owe you accessibility. I don't owe you intelligibility. I don't have to make sense. I don't have to be explainable to you. This is also the desire of modernity in its algorithmic, you know, ongoingness. Mm -hmm. What it does is it has to render everything categorizable. Mm -hmm. It has to index. It has to name in a final way. I was watching a clip of a documentary on John Oliver's... Um, show mm -hmm. which was dedicated to museums hence the inspiration to start out with museums um yesterday and there was a clip where some native americans were taken to this underground facility where they were shown artifacts from their own history arrows bowls you know things made for with cooking mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that and these things had been codified marked with sharpies put in boxes people the visitors were forbidden to touch these things right these were memories that were taken away from them and they could not touch them because they were now sacred in a different way holy in the sense that we often think about holiness a called out kadosh mm -hmm. right they were taken away and this is the distance that modernity the epistemology of our lives is to distance us from the sacred. Mm -hmm. As you say, you cannot touch your own life, your feces, <laughs> your body, 
your sex, your lovemaking, your your failures, all these things I will take and I will name and I will give them back to you. But you can only see them through the prisms, through the glass-stained windows of a museum. You cannot mm-hmm. be them. You can only have relations of ownership with these things. Ugh. Why? Why this? Because you summoned me to be this genie to make it possible for you to live forever. And this is what living forever means, right? So, I, <laughs> so I'm not sure where to go with this. But yes, we are in such a state that we are cut off from, um, from the things that make us up. And, hmm. and that is what naming performs. Maybe hmm. naming with a lisp is the invitation here. You know, naming with disability, right? And this is why I'm so enamored and magnetized by disability studies, right? The, the places that modernity struggles with, because modernity struggles with death, it struggles with shadows, it struggles with the disabled. It has mounted so many institutions to cordon off and quarantine the less than human. So it creates the asylum and pushes it in there and says, you know, I don't know what to do with this, but I will try to reform you so you get to speak like us. Mm-hmm. So you get to look like us and think like us, right? Those are the places we want to go in. Those are the places that Delini, Fernand Delini, you know, Jean Ory, uh, Gilles Deleuze, Francois Tosquiel, these beautiful visionaries in post-war France, they rejected the asylum and they rejected the naming categoricity, the naming rituals of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Well, not all of them. But Delini rejected Lacanian psychoanalysis and was like, no, I, I resist the idea that these beings are fully named. How about we learn to be humble in the presence of an autistic teenager and we follow the teenager and accompany the teenager instead of trying to incarcerate them in the institution? What happens then? So this is, we're in a time of jubilee. And the jubilee is the jubilee of monsters and the jubilee of speakability. We must release speakability. We must give speakability its freedom papers. And then we must learn <laughs> to be quiet, to be quiet. Maybe then, maybe in being quiet, we, <laughs> we can learn new names. And this is not to say there is some utopian other of naming. Like we can come to a place where naming is done with. No, we won't name. And there will always be a risk with naming. But when we're stuck, we need the the monster's agency to disrupt our naming conventions. Mm, Beautiful. Wow. And this is perfectly aligned with the other tributary flowing in the same direction, which was, I wanted to ask you, as you as you brought up the mystical, you know, the mystics and their writings, yeah. which for so many of them, as we know, had experiences that were unnameable, were beyond the categories of rationality and words. Yet they tried to communicate their experiences. But what we often fail, those of us who are, you know, fans of, of the mystics of all great traditions, what we often fail to realize is that it's the categorizations around them that then shut off their experience as somehow being other than ours, as more sacred than ours, or as only happening once you've achieved a certain level of, you know, conscious effort and strife of climbing up to that unitive oneness, this like, uh, this, this zenith <laughs> of arrival point in the spiritual map. And I've spent a lot of time studying and working with Richard Rohr who writes a lot about, you know, the mystics and and their experiences. But he creates these categories of the transitions that people go through in life, where he says there's order, then there's disorder, and then there's reorder. He says there's first half of life, and then there's second half of life. These are very linear delineations and categories, (laughs) right? To me, I would always always give him shit about it. I would always be like, wait, Richard, I mean, like, spoken like a man in a male order in a religion created and run by men. I mean, and I would get into it with him, and he would always chuckle because this was my way. But this doesn't hold true to my body. It's not mm. order, disorder, reorder. It's bloody shedding, yes. sometimes conception, birthing that is painful and close to death, dying and shedding again, and pain and pleasure and receiving and pushing and more shedding. And all of that is life. And 
all of that, all of that is oneness. And I suppose because my body is permeable, I feel the permeability of reality and all bodies are permeable, right? But as someone once said to me, they were concerned, they, they brought this up to me in like maybe a couple months ago on social media. They were concerned that I'm no longer on the edge of the inside, which is a term that Richard would use to describe his positioning within Christianity. Mm. And, you know, I laughed because I didn't know how to ease her discomfort in that question. You know, I don't know where I am because it's all become so permeable. I mean, it's just, it's like a giant flux. Where where are the edges and where are the boundaries? Mm. Um, but what I hear her saying is that Richard and others do feel this dutiful call to contribute to the idea that they can reform Christianity or help it to evolve. And I guess, I mean, I understand that, but there's still, like, there's still this linearity, this, this order, disorder, reorder approach to that kind of mm. thinking and reformation. And I'm wondering if in this act of no longer needing to name, of being at peace with the monstrous decay of what has been, Bio, I find myself no longer feeling that dutiful call to rescue the project of Christianity, because in some ways, I'm not trying to rescue myself either. I'm no longer trying to save myself here. Those kinds of causal categories and linear categories have fallen away, but rather to just observe and be with in the midwife, in the midwifery, maybe, or in the quiet sitting Shiva of what needs to die and what is being born. Mm. And so I want to ask you about how the unnameable applies to our understanding of these linear categorizations that we'd construct for our own lives, right? Mm. Order, disorder, reorder being an example, mm. where we're still relying on the architectures that declare certain things about time that we now know to not be true, mm. that there isn't this one great causal linear trajectory. Mm. So can you speak to us about what is unnameable about time and our mm. place in it? <laughs> one of the things I'm learning about what I poetically and sometimes I would say prophetically call an autistic politics is that there is a different relation to language that doesn't require the world to cohere in a way that is manageable, mm. right? What uh, Fernand Delini, you know, resisted was that things have to be explainable or languageable for us to be proper subjects. And he was like, why do we need to start out from the position of the subject? Does a smile need to belong to a face for it to be a smile, right? The, do things have to belong to us? Does language have to belong to these traditions of naming? Um, or do naming conventions need to be held by a unitary subject or the notion of a paradigm, which is a, a beautiful and cohesive way and probably harmonious way to think about complexity, but it also shuts out and shuts down the tensions that are within, right? It, let me put it this way, that I, I don't know, and I'm so grateful for the way you reframed that linear historicity of order, um, falling into disorder, falling into order, as if order were by itself itself the goal right or yes or even the goal right the the, the purpose of reform and um clinical intervention in in psychotherapy with autistic children is to move them towards the subject right is to move them towards subjectivity as we know it so don't flap your hands don't scream don't there, there's something wrong with that and I don't know why I'm bringing up Delini over and over again. And he went in this different direction and said, how about we notice that subjectivity was, is, and our language and our naming is getting in the way of other ways of being in the world that they are with already. Mm -hmm. There is a story by Herman Melville. You might know the story. It's, uh, it's called the uh, Benito Sereno. Um, and it's the story of, I think I got that right. Benito Sereno is, 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 the, is the name of a captain of a slave ship. 
that is broken down. It holds some slaves in it. And the slaves are making a hell of a noise. There is an American captain that boards this slave ship and upbraids the captain of this slave ship, the one named Benito Sereno, and basically says to him that there's something wrong with you, man, right? There's so much noise. There's order needed here. We need order. Keep yourself together. Get yourself, get your slaves in order. Keep them in line. Stuff like that. He's, he's doing what a, psych, a good psychotherapist would mm-hmm. want to do. Push down the noise and maintain order, right? Um, of course, Herman Melville helps us know that the noise actually hides a strange intelligence, one that is totally lost on the protagonists, which is this concert, um, this this collective attempt to steal and hijack the ship and navigate it back to Africa, right? But the noise masks this intelligence, right? So this story comes to mind because I think when we speak in terms of paradigms and epochs and ages, we sometimes get lost in this managerial styles of thinking (laughs) (laughs) that we do not notice the tensions like beneath the slave ship when we speak about order or the, or the real Christianity or Christianity as it really should be, beneath that are the bodies of black people. Mm-hmm. Beneath that are the bodies of women. Beneath that are the bodies of plants. Beneath that are the discarded and the excluded and the occluded and the invisibilized so that there has never been modern civilization. There has never been some unique, stereotypic, you know, isolated um, you know, age that we can return to, some utopia that we can just summon mm-hmm. if only we get the geniuses in the room together. So for me, the invitation is to you already sitting with monsters. I feel that is the edge on the inside. I don't know what Richard Raw calls the, the edges on the I feel that those are the edges for me. The monsters are the edges. <laughs> right. And I often refer I didn't know Richard Raw had a phrase or maybe his work had the phrase edges in the inside. I often say the edges in the middle. In fact, I have a project now called the edges in the middle, mm. right? And to me, that is where the monster is, mm-hmm. right? The monster is, it's a refusal to collect our perceptions in a coherent way, right? The, the monster eludes or evades coherence. And, mm. and there's nothing more feminist than the monster. The monster is like, no, I, I, I refuse to be named in a final way. So Christianity needs its monsters at this point in time. Maybe the work is to keep on telling the stories of the edges. It's the reason why I love Lilith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love Lilith. Me too. And, and, love, and love those outer stories of sin <laughs> that invite something else to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's so precisely the impetus that I had with this season was to name what is monstrous historically to look back and say, can we appreciate that there never was yeah. this utopian version of what we worship as this, you know, ideal, true form of Christianity? Yes. This never happened. No. That it, it wasn't, there wasn't a glorified time in which, you know, the disciples were getting it right and things were going wonderfully. And there has always been this messy, violent, colluding, empire-orienting, need to conquer through deterministic theological laws and architectures, that which is just wild. (laughs) That which may, you know, might have been so much more at home, or at least what some people like Sophie Strand, who I know you're friends with and a fan of I am as well, who talks about rerouting what Jesus's life might have been within the context of rabbinic shamanism and folktelling, storytelling, which he is famous for, which is was unfinished, which wasn't so clearly declarative, although many writers later on in the articulation of his words tried to make sense or order out of. Yes. You write bio that love has a way of unraveling you. You say, making you float above the imperatives of reason and logic, unchaining you from the graviton teleology. Love doesn't make sense. Yeah. Not everything has to. And 
I wonder about this moment and what you talk about, you know, maybe the edges of the inside or the edges of the middle, this welcoming of the monstrous is final kind of um, sigh of recognition of humanity, (laughs) the humanity of all of this, the humanity of how we how we are and how we try to create stories of what is unnameable, how we will always continue to do so. And yet that maybe that return to humanity could issue a humility toward the more than human, toward that which has been pushed down and shoved down in dominance and in violence. Yes. There is something in this moment that I think was very much the project of this podcast, which is to say, you know, <laughs> and I'm thinking now of one of the architectures that Richard used to describe reality was this nested egg idea mm. of these cosmic eggs, you know, these different nested eggs, which was beautiful. And then, of course, I had to fuck it up because Good. I wrote an essay <laughs> f- contributing to one of these uh, literature uh, publications that they do at this at the Center for Action and Contemplation, where I said, what if the crack is the sacred vaginal site of emergence? There you so go. if there are nested, <laughs> what if, if, there's ne- if there's nested eggs, can we maybe begin to not see the crack as problematic, but as life? As, as the vaginal site of new life being born, as the messy, commingling site of pleasure and possibility, mm-hmm. and also pain. Oh, that is so beautiful. Yes. Yes. A, a Botswanan shaman through a friend was in, invited to comment on the origins of the universe. And he pointed to a hole in the ground and said, there, that's where the universe came from. I liked the shocking refusal to create epic narratives about in the beginning there was time or in the beginning he just said you know without even giving a moment's thought there that hole in the ground that's where everything came from next question you know um (laughs) and and that that's a lot more theoretically fabulous and dense than we might give it credit for in yoruba mythology we tell the stories of orishas i am known to dabble a bit in re-engineering these stories to be more relational and processual. So I'm not just picking from an archive and just sharing it that way, just for those who are listening to this story. And it's really not a story, it's just a comment that the Orishas, which are the super deified superhuman beings, they're like gods and lesser gods, came from the pieces, the shrapnel of the Olodomari, which is the supreme god, right? So. Shango and Oya and Ogun and all the gods basically came from those pieces. But Eshu, the trickster, came from the cracks within or the cracks between. And the trickster is what is the cracks that hold everything together. If you think about it, the crack is not empty. It's negative theology, right? Which is already filled and replete with life forms. But yes, I, I feel we're in this place where we want to, where I think the need to politicize the inappropriately teleological attempts to make Christianity fit into a box, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we want to politicize that and denaturalize that, right? And, and say that, fine, this utopian gesture, fine. But notice the politics of it. Notice the values and the ideologies mm-hmm. and the instigations and the orientations that are at work here in this gesture for arriving in a spiritual vocation that exceeds arrival, right? Like, like it's, arrival is the, is the damning point for me. I don't care whether it's heaven or hell, that you arrive. Yeah. Is so and is so impoverished an imagination that it's, like I'm good, so I'm here, right? What what else? Yeah. You know, <laughs> so that is some good work for our time is to see through the prisms of the dishuman or the non-human mm. through the tentacular, through the rhizomatic, mm. to politicize attempts at arrival, and to without hoping for scale. Or I want everyone to know about this, you know, which seems like another colonial gesture. To practice this stain within the cracks, I think, is enough. 
Because the notion of enough isn't quite yet made within cracks, mm. right? Because the crack is, like you say beautifully, the menstrual and vaginal and rhizomatic core of becoming. There isn't anything that is fully determined in those places. And yes, 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 those are where new gods and new ancestors sprout from. So I would say, for instance, my sister, that the Christianity that fed me was like onto a plantation, a cotton plantation. And now I'm practicing a kind of strange fugitivity. So that in a sense, and I often say this, that the plantation isn't evil, right? Again, I don't traffic in absolutes. The plantation um, is rhizomatic as well. And it also is yearning to become something else as everything is yearning to become other than itself, right? So that the fugitive is an extension of the plantation. If we think that way, then candomble and Rastafarianism and all the Caribbean spiritualities and Aphrodite spiritualities are Christianity, right? <laughs> right, right. All the perversions, the paganisms, those are the sexual intimacies of Christianity that we don't know about and we're not able to speak about because we're trapped in paradigms and we presuppose that order must beget order, right? <laughs> so so <laughs> staying at the site of the transversal, right, is huge work. That is the politics that I'm so magnetized by. Mm. You know, the giant foot that suddenly, is it Lilliputian? No, Lilliputian is small. What's the other city? I forget, you know, <laughs> Gulliver's Travel. Um, the giant foot that just invades the city and we don't know how to make sense of it. Mm. It's this mystical form. It's this, it's this call to worship. Unfortunately, we create institutions from worship to preserve the experience, as you've rightly said. Mm. Um, the mark, the gesture, you know, becomes a handle by which we guide ourselves and navigate through the city. Now it's time to lose a sense of balance. And this is where the monster comes in. Mm. Yeah. Bio, I... I have to read you something. I wrote this this morning and I was going to share it with you at the end of this podcast, like after we were done recording. Not knowing what our conversation was going to be about, these are the words that I wrote. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Something has occurred to me. <laughs> Always a great place to start. Something <laughs> has occurred to me. That's a great way to start a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't need a story that starts in the beginning or a triumphant apocalyptic revelation. I don't need shame any longer in order to be astonished by grace. And I don't need to damn myself in order to feel how turning toward the unfinished mystery of love is always a salvation. Yeah. Even the mystics I so worshiped and the teachers I tried to saint have come down from their pulpits and their portraits and embraced me as we continue on our ways. No more mausoleums and museums, <laughs> mm. only horizons and those with the courage to keep walking toward them. I'm inspired by their lives and words, but only insofar as I'm inspired by my own and those uttered and unutterable around me. So it seems, the husk of systems of belief has died and fallen away, and a seed of just living now germinates. And that is enough. <laughs> that is more than enough to animate my hope, my courage, and my desire to give everything I have to this creative story. That is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to get it copy of that by the way <laughs> you got it <laughs> yes because bio whatever diaphanously shines through the mess of being material this messy middle that which could be said is anointed as christic or divine already just for being mm. i see in you and your work and your work animates that kind of seeing in me and so many others so thank you for being a companion on this road of unknowing for me and for so many of us. I'm grateful and I'm so touched that you ended this way. 
<laughs> it's lovely. Or else we could have gone, kept on going for another two days. But I'm grateful. Oh, I mean, I, I would have loved that. I would have really loved that too. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you Bio. So we're learning to let the rupture form itself on our maps and to embrace a path of no arrival and the monstrous as the site of emergence, maybe even our own. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. Binaries perpetuate binaries. There was this moment pretty early on in the conversation when Bio said, you know, that even our categories of in and out, victim and oppressor are still recreating the same dualistic dynamic. He said, the monster will save us. It's the trickster. It's the the third force that enters into the mix and takes us into an unexpected, unnameable place. To trust that, to see that as part of growth. In one of the summer courses that I teach on creativity called Wield, I shared with students some stories from my Celtic ancestry. And in them, this idea of the hag, this like terrible, witchy looking creature in the middle of the forest is actually secretly a fae queen, which is the, you know, their form of divinity, their gods. So what is hideously divine in your own life? What is inviting a reframe? What site of decay or composting is most <laughs> repelling you and yet calling you to it at the same time? I find that to be a super juicy question. Second piece of true North wisdom that I'm digesting, metabolizing, I really appreciated when he said, maybe it's not about trying to find like some sort of utopian new way of naming, like, you know, some poetic version of like, no, if we can just, if we can just name in this way, but he said, maybe it's naming with a lisp. The whole section where he spoke on the problem with subjectivity within the spectrum of autism, within which psychologists are trying to normalize behavior until it resembles what we've determined is normal behavior. This really moved me deeply. How can we become fugitives of normality, <laughs> of what has been deemed as the right and proper subjective way? And I guess I had this thought um, that we we do this same thing with belief systems, <laughs> right? There are the subjective forms of spirituality that have been declared as dominant, as, as the proper order of a hierarchy of believing. But if we're composting these ideologies, then we're exposed, we're remembered, we're reconnected into membership, into relationship with these other wild cosmologies and stories and beliefs, these frequencies and songs and stories that have always been there. Here's the thing. If Christ is another name for everything, to quote the brilliant Richard Rohr, meaning that Christ is just another name uh, for what has been anointed as divine, then all of these wild stories can lay claim to sacred origins. So perhaps one of the emerging fungal growths <laughs> from this entire season is that as we compost Christianity, the institution <laughs> that has become synonymous with that one movement long ago, what begins to emerge, what has space to breathe, what actually has an opportunity to grow through the cracks of that foundation of that oppressive concrete that was choking life out. Are these folk tales, these wild mythologies, these old stories from the rich multivocality of the soil of our own histories? And what they invite is new stories and new imaginations and new iterations and utterances and non-utterances of possibility. Which leads me to the third and, and final piece of True North wisdom to metabolize from this rich conversation. When Bayo said the practice of staying within the cracks is enough. Just 
learning how to stay in these places of rupture and discomfort without collapsing into the familiar binaries and deterministic terms that we're more comfortable with. That's the work. That's the invitation. That's the juice. That's the place. And as we, as we laughed and shared, you know, those cracks, those vaginal sites of emergence are also the sites of pleasure and possibility. So to be there is to be attentive, to be present in the body, to be here in the middle, in the messy, could be. That's it for today's episode. Next week on Unknowing Podcast, we continue our exploration. We're nearing the end now of this season on composting Christianity. We will be speaking with theologian, tour de force, Catherine Keller. You heard Bio mention her work. We're both huge fans of her incredible contributions to process theology. It was an absolute honor to get to speak with her. I cannot wait to share that conversation with you next week. Finally, and in closing, you know I like to end my episodes with a little bit of poetry. The poetry I selected for this season of Unknowing is from David White, Sweet Darkness. He says, you must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. <laughs>